Hello and welcome to the Informed Animal Ally presented by the Vancouver Humane Society. This is the animal ethics podcast where we share the ins and outs of topics like cruelty, legislation, and advocacy here in BC and across Canada. I'm Chantelle Archambeau, Communications Director for the Vancouver Humane Society. With me, as always, is VHS's Executive Director, Amy Morris. Hello. We're going through a new series where we'll talk about animal well-being, asking what does good welfare look like for animals? The second episode will go into what good training experiences look like for animals and delve into a topic a lot of animal guardians are curious about which is training. Yeah. So the way an animal is trained will make a big impact on their experience of the world and level of happiness. The most important thing to mention is that animal training is 100% grounded in science. Any person can learn how to train animals and can get consistent results. There's certainly knowledge and skills to be learned over time, and those include, in particular, how to best design an effective training protocol in regards to frequency and timing. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So if you like reading, the BCSBCA just released an updated 2023 literature review on dog training that gives great scientific grounding. We'll link that in the podcast notes that accompany this podcast. Yeah, this is a huge topic. There are entire podcasts dedicated to just micro aspects of animal training. And there are endless, endless opportunities to learn and get better at animal training. We're going to try to collapse a lot of information into one episode, but we'll link to resources to help you continue on your learning journey if you find this interesting. And those will be in the blog post that accompanies this episode, which can be found at vancouverhumane.ca slash podcasts. So what are the reasons to train animals? In a broad sense, there are three goals in training. One, we want to protect ourselves from animals that can harm us. Two, we want to protect animals from harm, real or perceived. And three, we want to build a bond between us and animals. The most common examples of protecting ourselves from animals can include preventing us or others from being bitten or scratched, knocked or pulled over. That can also include preventing animals from getting in fights with each other. And other ways of protecting animals from harm includes preventing them from running or, or flying away and related harms like getting injured or starving, as well as husbandry activities such as grooming, foot and hoof care, and medical care and treatment. You can also do trick training or other fun agility type activities that help to build a bond between you and an animal. Yeah. And speaking of protecting animals from harm, real or perceived, animals can perceive harm that isn't there, such as when they have a fear from the noise of fireworks. And training can play a big part in making our companions feel happy and healthy and safe. So I'm going to try to speak in really simple terms about the science of animal training, but I will bring in some technical terms. I know many people have taken psychology classes or heard of that experiment where a person called Pavlov rang a bell, which led to an animal salivating in prediction to food delivery. That's called classical conditioning. Right. Classical conditioning is um, basically when a neutral stimulus like ringing a bell is paired with a stimulus that 
provokes a response like food. Um, And eventually the animal associates the neutral stimulus with the meaningful stimulus so strongly that they start expressing the response when they're exposed just to the neutral stimulus alone, which is why Pavlov's dogs salivated when they heard a bell. There's so many examples we can get into on this, and we will. Um, But before we dive into some specific scenarios, I'd love to talk a bit about the impacts of genetics and environment on training. The science of genetics, epigenetics, and environment on behavior is developed more in some species than others. In a very broad sense, we understand that the negative life experiences of an animal can get passed on to their offspring. In humans, this could be labeled as intergenerational trauma. Research in rats has demonstrated that if a rat is stressed while pregnant, the offspring will demonstrate more signs of fear and anxiety. However, there's genetic and temperament variations within a litter. So essentially, one offspring can be really fearful and aggressive, while another can come out fearful and defensive, and another could seem to be easygoing. These behaviors are seen to continue into adulthood. And it's important to note that wild animals will be genetically fearful of humans. Feral domestic animals are those that aren't exposed to humans in their early lives. So we know that environmental or early life experiences can play a big role as to the level of fear that domestic animals experience, such as one in response to humans. Absolutely. Uh, We mentioned classical conditioning. Now we can get into how classical conditioning can better describe the role that genetics and environmental influences play on behavior. So we know classical conditioning is, it causes a neutral stimulus to result in an involuntary response. And one example of that is a fear response. So the way people and animals respond to different stimuli, especially in terms of what causes fear and anxiety for individuals and their risk tolerance is very individual. The way that we and other animals respond to different stimuli will differ from person to person, from animal to animal. For example, some people can stand at the top of a high building very comfortably. Others will experience a fear response like a racing heart or sweating because standing at the top of a building can be seen by some to present a risk, but it's not a sign of imminent danger in itself. The same kind of thing goes for walking into a loud, crowded restaurant. For animals, some common things that can provoke a fear response are skateboards or vacuum cleaners. Yeah, yeah. Classical conditioning is really interesting because as I was mentioning, it can relate to these early life experiences and temperament. So one animal might hear a loud noise and be unaffected, while another will hide at a young age. With no change or influence, will continue to hide as an adult. As we mentioned earlier, fireworks are a great example of this. Many animals are terrified of fireworks because of the loud noises they elicit. And so training animals with classical conditioning methods involves essentially three concepts, habituation, desensitization, and counter conditioning. So we'll break these down. Um, Habituation can occur when a stimulus has repeated exposure and the animal doesn't experience any consequences. They'll become familiar with it. The effectiveness of habituation depends on the degree of sensitivity of an individual. I might be able to get used to motorcycle noises by being exposed to them over time, while another individual might find them increasingly fear-inducing. The same goes for individual animals. It can be helpful to pair positive reinforcement, such as delivering a treat, with stimuli that we think might cause fear in the future for the animal to aid in the habituation process when an animal is newly being exposed to unfamiliar stimuli. 
Delivering a treat is one way of conditioning the animal. So instead of being fearful of something like a noise, they have a neutral or positive association with it. I was once fostering a mini Dalmatian mix that had spent her whole life tied up or crated in a barn, and I was tasked with exposing her to new stimuli. It was really interesting seeing the world through her eyes. She would even cower when a plane went by overhead. And so delivering treats was really important in those moments. Right. So basically, the dog you were caring for was becoming habituated to everything because she hadn't been exposed to anything. It sounds like she was in a similar situation to kind of a puppy going out into the world for the first time. So if an animal isn't having a response to a new thing at all, or is just having like a brief startle response about something new, we can help them become habituated to the new thing. But if they're already showing signs of fear as a response to something, we can use the tools of counter conditioning and desensitization as kind of our go-to methods for making life more comfortable for them. Yeah. And so I'd like to highlight some examples of that because I know it can be a little bit overwhelming with these terms. Two examples I would love to highlight are a fear of the sound of skateboards and a fear of having nails or hooves done. So if we take a step back, first, we have to identify what the animal we're working with is afraid of. We talked a little bit about fear and stress behaviors in the last episode, so I won't go into great detail. But depending on the species, you might observe cowering, running or flying away, freezing, barking, running towards the fearful situation aggressively, hissing, swatting, scratching, pecking, and more. And so once that fear behavior is observed and identified, and the cause of the fear is identified, a training plan can be created. It's best to work with a trainer who's knowledgeable about the species, you know, especially if you think you or your animal are at risk of injury or further psychological damage. Uh, For example, my dog Clover became so averse to having her nails cut that I had to work with a trainer to develop a very carefully constructed protocol for desensitizing and counter-conditioning her, which is also called DSCC. Similarly, her fear of skateboards became quite problematic because she would run towards them barking and almost pull me over. And we got to the point where no one else could walk her because of that risk. So you said you have been working or have worked with desensitization counter conditioning with Clover. What are some steps that someone could take to desensitize and counter condition an animal who has a fear response? The most important thing to understand about the process of DSCC is that animals have a threshold. That means there's a moment that they don't observe the thing they're afraid of. Then there's a moment when they notice and don't react. And then there's a moment when they react. It's impossible to desensitize and counter condition an animal that's already reacting or is completely unaware. Some fearful animals can even stay in a hypervigilant state. So they're always looking for threats and it's hard to train them when they're essentially beyond their threshold. So trainers suggest creating opportunities for decompression so that an animal becomes less hypervigilant and is more relaxed as a status quo before even getting into the steps of DSCC because they need to be able to, at least at a really far distance, notice, observe, and not react. And so that's really the only method to do DSCC is to identify that moment and deliver a reward, a positive kind of reinforcement when they're under their threshold and when they haven't reacted yet. So it can be really important to set up scenarios to keep them feeling safe and relatively below threshold. As I mentioned, that can mean keeping a large distance between an animal and whatever's triggering them. Or with something like foot or hoof care, breaking the process down into micro steps. 
For example, if an animal reacts just to seeing the nail clippers, then anything that happens after they see the nail clippers is going too far and is pushing them past threshold. There's a lot of videos about this on YouTube. You can look up DSCC and look into what breaking it up into micro steps can look like. And you'll notice when we talk about DSCC, desensitization and counter conditioning are coupled together. And that's because both of those things are needed to change a behavior response from fearful to neutral. Desensitization essentially describes the reduction emotional response to the stimuli or the outcome that is desired, while counter conditioning describes the method that's used to achieve that outcome. It involves changing the association the animal has made between the behavior and the behavior's consequence by pairing it with a positive experience, like giving a treat. Exactly. And that's what's always needed in this process, the pairing of a positive experience. I actually did this with my companion cat, Callie, last year. We had fireworks going off near our home every night leading up to Halloween, and she was very fearful of them. She was actually becoming more sensitized to them as it went along. So I tried to help her get used to the fireworks by giving her a treat every single time one went off. And that's a common training method that I had noticed, but I didn't realize that it was actually a classical conditioning method. Yeah. And typically a really high value reward is needed for this process, a reward that the animal doesn't experience any other time. What's important to consider as well, that the training is short and intentional because just like us, animals reach a limit where they can't relearn. That limit is extremely short when it comes to situations that cause fear. So it's a very slow process to do DSCC, but we know from science that it works. It just requires calm, consistent behavior on our part. Some scenarios we may never achieve the full outcome we're hoping for. For example, if you have a pet bird who bites your finger as a means of protection, it might take a very long time to change that. And realistically, based on the bird's early life experiences, the behavior may never change as much as you want it to. Right. And this can be a really difficult concept to learn about and absorb. So we're going to include some links to videos where you can see DSCC in action with a few different species. It can be helpful to look through YouTube for desensitization and counter conditioning or whatever fear issue the animal you're working with is experiencing to get a general idea of how to address that specific issue. But keep in mind that the person on YouTube might also be making some mistakes when it comes to the value of the reward, the timing, uh, how much they push the animal in each section. And keep in mind that each animal is an individual and will move at a different pace. I also want to note here that there's a misconception that taming and training are completely different things. But really, taming is just one type of training that uses classical conditioning techniques of desensitization to teach animals to tolerate human touch who normally wouldn't, like a hamster, which is an exotic species, or a feral cat. Yeah. So now that we've covered classical conditioning and hopefully it all made sense, let's talk about operant conditioning. So that's the formal term for intentionally increasing or decreasing the frequency of a behavior using a consequence. Something to keep in mind that I'll bring up throughout that this is really the same techniques that have an impact on human behavior. 
And so essentially the way you raise a child or treat a friend and the way you treat an animal are grounded in the same science. Yeah. And I think this is probably the thing people do most consciously with children when they're teaching children to do something like giving a toddler a high five every time they put their shoes on nicely for a walk because they really like high fives. In operant conditioning, there are four quadrants representing the four different ways of training. There's positive reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, and negative reinforcement. So the term positive is used when a consequence is something that's being added. And the term negative is when the consequence is that something is taken away. And the term reinforcement is used to describe trying to increase the frequency of a desired behavior. Punishment is used to decrease the likelihood of a behavior in the future. Yeah. So I find this one of the most confusing things to go through. And there are lots of resources that you can read more about it. And hopefully these examples help. Positive reinforcement is essentially adding something to the equation to encourage an animal to repeat a desired behavior. We'll talk about this lots ahead, but you can think of this as the well-timed use of food, play, or happy verbal attention to encourage them to repeat desired behaviors. Positive punishment involves adding a stimuli to stop an unwanted behavior. This can include a person telling a dog no or stop when they're barking. Positive punishment is often used when people are walking an animal on a leash. I've seen it that when a dog pulls, handlers have a tendency to just tug at the leash. In this case, the handler is adding a correction as the consequence, which is related to the concept of positive that they hope will decrease the frequency of behavior, which is the concept of punishment. So it's a little bit strange because these terms positive and punishment don't always mean what we think they mean. Negative punishment is when we take away something to get a behavior to stop. This could be, for example, walking away silently from an animal that is jumping up. And then the final section of the quadrant is negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is when negative stimuli are applied to increase the frequency of a desired behavior. A person might put physical pressure on a horse with the body of another horse until the horse that they're trying to train offers a desired behavior, such as turning a certain way, at which point they give the horse more space. The horse is offering that behavior as an attempt to avoid the physical pressure that they were experiencing. Right. Although these are all ways that can be used to train animals, we know from research that the level of effectiveness and the long-term outcomes for the psychological well-being of the animals can differ based on the technique used. And the different quadrants don't fully encapsulate or explain the role that trust plays in each of these scenarios. You want to build a trusting relationship with an animal if you're training them. Assuming that all of these training methods are applied consistently, a training method like positive reinforcement builds trust because the animal gets enjoyment from the experience through their their brain chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, and they want to continue to seek out experiences that lead to the release of those chemicals. But on the flip side, training methods like positive punishment or negative reinforcement are grounded in the parts of the brain that seek to avoid situations that cause fear or pain, and they don't have a knock-on continuous effect of building trust. Exactly. So we tend to use the words reward-based and aversive-based training to differentiate between these two categories. In the literature review we referenced from the BCSBCA, four out of four data-based research studies found that training with aversive-based techniques lead to more stress-related behaviors in dogs 
compared to training with reward-based techniques. They also identified that seven out of seven surveys reviewed found more frequent reported use of aversive-based techniques were associated with more frequent reporting of aggression or other problem behaviors. I'm so curious to understand what is most effective and and what can cause long-term problems. You spoke in the last episode about receiving advice from a trainer to encourage a dog not to bark. And most people's response, I think, would be to trust what we see as professional advice, advice coming from a trainer. How do we know if the guidance a trainer is giving us is trustworthy or not? Yeah, this is something I've grappled with a lot. With my first dog, he had a big barking problem. He barked at every noise he heard. And unfortunately, I worked with a trainer who was not knowledgeable about animal behavior. And they suggested I make something, a tool that makes a loud noise or try a spray bottle and introduce that every time he barked. I now know these methods as positive punishment. The Trinella collars and shock collars are also positive punishment. Unfortunately, I was misguided and my dog suffered for it. So I know now that the best ways to manage barking behavior involve counter conditioning and desensitization, as well as managing the environment. So with my current dog, Clover, when she started barking out the window, a trainer suggested frosting the glass so she couldn't see through. Whenever we would move to a new place, I would give her high value treats every time we heard a noise before she had a chance to bark. And pretty soon she was coming to me for treats whenever she heard a noise instead of barking. So when trying to screen for a trainer, it's important to ask clear questions about what quadrants of operant condition they work with, as well as what outcomes they have seen implementing DSCC. Avoid working with trainers who can't speak about the quadrants of operant conditioning. This is a big red flag and is really common in the horse community. Also avoid trainers who say they are comfortable using positive punishment or negative reinforcement. These are aversive methods. That's really good to know when you're looking for a trainer. I had no idea it would be so difficult to identify a good one. You also mentioned shock collars. I was wondering if you could speak more to different tools that are used for training. Yeah, absolutely. In an ideal world, animals could be completely naked with no harness or halter or collar. However, sometimes we need to attach the animal to us or ourselves to the animal for that added layer of safety. So in those situations, we don't want to put them or us at risk. It can get pretty high stakes, especially when you're talking about large animals like horses. The most important thing is to see a collar, leash, harness, or halter as something that the animal might be fearful of and either habituate or if they're already fearful, practice DSCC to ensure that they're comfortable with putting on and taking off the apparatus. Any tool that is safe to use should not cause pain. Tools like putting bits in horses' mouths, prong collars, choke collars, shock collars are all designed with positive punishment training methods in mind. A trainer might be deceptive about this. For example, think about a scenario where a dog is walking around away from a person. The person calls the dog, gets no response. The desired behavior is for the dog to come back to the person. So a trainer might suggest pairing an electric shock, which is positive punishment, to extinguish the undesired behavior, which is walking away, with a treat when they change their behavior and call that positive reinforcement. So can you see the problem with that example? Uh, yeah, I think there might be a few. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. Um, the first is that the trainer is adding an intermediary of positive punishment into a scenario that can be trained without it. So what that does is it makes a person dependent on shocking their dog to get the outcomes they want. And we know from research that that's not necessary because there's a dependency there. The second problem is that shocking a dog is aversive and can lead to long-term negative outcomes for both the dog, the relationship of the dog 
with other dogs, strangers, and their guardian, since it brings in their fear response. What if a dog gets an electric shock when they're next to another dog? If they're fear-aggressive by nature, they may end up turning and biting that dog, connecting the fear they're feeling to the presence of that dog. So then how do we eliminate the need for the shock collar in this example? It's really in identifying the original goal. It's for the dog to respond to being called. That can be really difficult when a dog has already latched on to the scent of an animal trail or the visual of another dog. So similar to the idea of a threshold, there can sometimes be a point of no return where a dog goes into a focus mode and no longer registers the sound of our voice. So recall training needs to be consistent with small wins and big rewards. You eventually build up to more complex scenarios and it has to be done gradually. The cue used to call the dog back has to be used only in specific scenarios where it's paired with a very high value reward. For example, for a time, Clover was trained to come to me yelling the word taco. At some point, I stopped using as high of rewards with that and I even use it once or twice without a reward and then the word lost its value. The good thing is you can always train a new cue whether it be a word that's easy to yell or a whistle. That's a great example of the difference between training using solely positive reinforcement versus positive punishment, which is aversive, and positive reinforcement combined. Do you have any other examples of operant conditioning? Yeah, yeah. Many people think um, the only way to train a horse is by putting some kind of pressure on them. Instead, horses do really well with clicker training. So a clicker is an intermediate reinforcer that gives a cue that an actual positive reinforcer will follow. This is helpful when there is a time that passes between when the behavior happens and our ability to deliver a reward. A click can happen right away and then the reward itself can follow. Uh, There's a website called Fair Horsemanship that is a great resource for clicker training horses to lunge, move hindquarters, walk at liberty, and more. Great reinforcers for horses include apples, carrots, sweet feed, but can also include high fiber pony cubes, sunflower seeds, chaff, and scratches, depending on the horse's past experiences with these items, as well as personal preference. Another example would be in sanctuary environments. It's really important for wild animals to be able to actively participate and opt into their care. So clicker training can work really well for this. You can find videos online of elephants voluntarily presenting their feet to be trimmed and filed. And positive reinforcement clicker training is how they work with animals to increase their desire to participate in what's called cooperative care. This is the term for any grooming and body maintenance that an animal chooses actively to be part of, rather than being tied down or held down for their care to occur. I really like talking about cooperative care because grooming and veterinary procedures can be stressful for all species. Often when a pet goes to a groomer, they're held in place by a tight cord around their neck and they feel helpless and they can't go anywhere. That's essentially aversive, but it's really common because of the time and cost pressure for the grooming and the expectations of the guardian on that. Ideally, pets are able to opt in and opt out of their grooming and veterinary handling experience. This can be done through positive reinforcement training and going slowly. With animals that are already fearful, the principles of desensitization and counter conditioning would need to be applied. Something to note is that veterinary professionals can be certified fear-free. You can learn more about this from the link in our blog. I only work with veterinary professionals who know how to read Clover's behavior and have the knowledge and training to keep her calm when we're at the vet. They never restrain her. At most, sometimes I hold her while a technician gives her treats if a needle is involved to prevent sudden movement that would further cause her harm. 
There was a viral video a little while ago on TikTok where a veterinarian was holding a spoonful of peanut butter so that puppies would lick it while they were getting a needle. I think that's exactly what you're talking about here. Mentioning the opt-in and opt-out, like animals being able to opt into their care and opt out of their care, sounds like when we talk about consent. I'm wondering if anyone talks about consent with animals. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I often think about people picking up small animals, cats, small dogs, without identifying first if it's something the animal wants. Uh, Similarly, people will touch the top of the head of an animal because it's the easiest to access. But typically, animals prefer to be offered a hand to sniff, and then they'll direct the hand where they want it for pets, if anywhere. So we can offer a lot to the animals in our lives by giving them the opportunity to ask for what they need without assuming that what we want, such as cuddles, (laughs) is something that they also want. You can train an animal to enjoy being picked up or to be pet. However, the training needs to be designed, just like everything else, with voice and choice. Interesting. Could you explain what you mean by voice and choice? Yeah. Yeah. Voice and choice refers to the ability of animals to communicate their needs and preferences and to have some control over their environments. So voice is referring to an animal's ability to communicate their needs and desires through vocalizations, body language, or other forms of behavior. It's this common misconception that animals do not have a voice. We know that they communicate clearly, but it comes down to whether anyone is actively listening to them. And then choice refers to an animal's ability to make decisions about their environment And in reference to training, their ability to end a training session when they want to. It's really important to listen to their voice, as you can often identify subtle signs of frustration when they start to become overwhelmed. Providing animals with opportunities to make choices in training can really help them develop problem-solving and decision-making skills. That's great. That's so helpful. I think that we're just about wrapping up this discussion, but to leave people off, we've talked a little bit about which types of training techniques are positive and which types are aversive to use. I thought we could leave people off with looking at the best ways to find an animal training professional who's going to have positive outcomes for the animal. Yeah. So really look for trainers that mention positive reinforcement training and use food-based rewards. Ask them about desensitization and counterconditioning and see if they understand the importance of pairing timing and rewards. There are also training accreditations that can be researched. Some are more effective than others, and some include only positive and some include some other aversive techniques. So if you aren't sure about a trainer, there's probably a good reason. Anyone can call themselves a trainer and they might actually make suggestions that are harmful. Just remember that any good trainer is focused on ensuring a positive bond between the person and their animal and a positive experience for the animal being trained. Thanks, Amy. This is such a broad topic and we could really go on for hours, but I hope that you, the listener, have found this overview helpful for this second episode of our new series. As always, if there's something you feel we missed, please leave us a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you will join us again next month. Thanks for listening, and feel free to send in any questions you have about animal training, and hopefully we can help you find the information that you need. Bye, everyone. The Informed Animal Ally is a podcast by the Vancouver Humane Society. 
If you found this episode helpful, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review to help us reach more supporters of animals. To support this project and other initiatives to build a kinder world for animals, you can make a donation at vancouverhumane.ca. You can also follow the Vancouver Humane Society on Facebook at Vancouver Humane Society, Instagram at Vancouver Humane, or Twitter at VanHumane. The music in this episode is the song Jonah's Message for New York by Dr. Turtle, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being an animal ally.